Good afternoon to everyone. Hope you're enjoying a lovely day where you are. It's lovely here in Iowa. I very much appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts about fairness and testing and based on some experiences, both from a, a research perspective as well as from a practitioner perspective. So it, it's exciting to sort of blend those two perspectives and, and share my thoughts. As we go forward, I want to focus the conversation today around three different topics. One, really the role of fairness and that it is this fundamental issue. It really cuts across everything. It cuts across everything we do on the front end from a design and development all the way through to the use and interpretation and really putting into place what we want our assessments to do. So we'll spend some time on that. The bulk of today will really be on practice and procedures, sort of what's current in the field, what are the standards that Jessica referenced, what are they telling us, what should we be doing, and what the field is really doing um, that some of it is, is appropriate, but some of it falls a little short. And then we'll end today with more specific strategies on where can we go as we move forward as the whole field of ed measurement um, moves forward with respect to new technologies, new abilities to combine learning with assessment. What can we do from a fairness perspective to ensure that we continue to have good faith that our, our assessments are valid, fair, and reliable for our test takers? So that very first one is really about fairness as a more global concept. How does it cut across everything we're doing? What is it really that we mean when we say fairness? And fairness is sort of one of those words. It it's, has many interpretations for different people. Um, as you listen to people's interpretation, they really they loosely use the word fairness to mean validity, or they use the word fairness to mean constructs. And, the standards, as Jessica referenced, really are a way to help us see fairness as a foundational, um, essential component of testing. And it's really there to intersect with validity, to intersect with use and interpretation, to allow us to protect test takers, test users, across the whole continuum, from the experience of taking the tests and the test items that they have in front of them, all the way through to when they get the scores and the use and interpretation that those scores are put to. That's what fairness means. And it's really ties to validity. Um, it is, as we all know, validity is allowing us to use evidence we have about an assessment to use it in a way that we feel good, that the validity evidence is supporting that particular use or that particular claim about an assessment. Well, fairness is an integral part of that validity argument, and it has to be fair in order to be valid. Um, so many of us maybe learned as we were measurement students to think about, well, you can, you have to be reliable in order to also be valid, but you can be reliable by itself, but not be valid. And I think about fairness in that same way. I have, in order to say something is valid, it has to be fair as well. And overall, good assessment and the design and development of good assessment is really to create an opportunity for that test taker to really demonstrate their performance, whether it be through a sort of a multiple choice test, whether it be an essay, whether it be a performance assessment, whatever it is, really, we're trying to create 
an opportunity for the test taker to really demonstrate what they know or can do about a particular subject. And so by taking fairness into account, we are enabling that to happen in a, in a better, more complete way. It's also, I think fairness is a shared responsibility. Too often, I think um, in my world, we have people that focus on content and then we have people that focus on psychometrics and then we have people that focus on the delivery of the test. And oftentimes these three entities on the front end have very um, independent and sort of siloed approaches, but what makes it really critical is when they integrate with one another and they talk to one another and knowing that the psychometrics and the decisions I'm making there are affecting the content and how that's represented. It's also affecting what I'm doing on the back end. I would say that same principle applies to fairness. It's really a shared responsibility. The test developer, along with the group or the test deliverer, along with that user, all three of those people or groups or entities have to share responsibility for what is fair. So I could create a test that's fair in one situation, but if that test user picks it up and uses it in some very different situation, then my fairness evidence no longer applies. Maybe I've done my due diligence on the front end, but the test user has taken it in a different way. And that's where we really have to think about fairness as um, an ongoing iterative process between developer, deliverer, and test user. And so it's no one particular group's responsibility, rather it's a shared responsibility. So as Jessica referenced, the 2014 standards for educational and psychological testing, they really did a nice job of highlighting fairness. The standards that predated these were um, finished and published in 1999. And fairness was very much part of those standards as well. Um, it was more in there as part of an accommodations piece as far as treating special groups of population, um, coming at different accessibility. However, the joint committee that really created the 2014 listened to a lot of people between 1999 and 2014, listened to various voices from both the professional side, the credentialing licensing side, from the education side, from the clinical side, and really saw fairness as more of a foundational concept of assessment than how it was presented in the 1999 standards. So therefore, as the Joint Committee shaped the 2014 standards, they moved it into one of these three foundational chapters in the beginning of the standards. So as you sit down to sort of try to better understand what the standards are saying, they're really saying, again, these three concepts of validity, reliability, and fairness really go hand in hand, and they set the stage for everything that comes after them. I think there's some critical um, messages in, in particular in the chapter three of the standards where they're emphasizing the idea of fairness. And some of these, again, are, are shared beliefs, and some sort of take on different interpretations depending on what field or what aspect of assessment you're coming to the conversation with. So first and foremost, fairness is not the same as bias. Fairness really is about accessibility. It's about creating an opportunity and assessment that allows um, that opportunity not to, not to advantage or disadvantage a certain group of individuals, whether they be students that are taking it online versus those that are taking it paper and pencil, whether it be females or males, whether it be English language learners or not English language learners. 
it is about accessibility for those students and trying to minimize anything that may advantage or disadvantage a certain group. So, but that is different than bias. The other part is accessibility to the construct. In this bullet, the construct meaning I have designed a test where what I am measuring is really what I intend to measure. So my definition of the construct, my definition of what it is I want to be able to say about this test taker after he or she completes this, um, this test, that ties to the construct and what, it's, what I have intended to measure through my construct. So giving students equal access to that construct is fairness. Fairness is also about the validity of individual test scores and the interpretations. And we know that once we give a test, that test scores sort of go and they migrate into a lot of different or with a lot of different audiences. I oftentimes, as a, a person that works with educational testing, I know that an audience can be that individual test taker who might be a kindergartner also the parent of that individual test taker. I know it's also this teacher, the policymaker, all the way up to perhaps the, the, the state's Department of Education. So all of those are different audiences for me, and all of those bring with them different interpretations and uses. So I want to have messages that are valid all the way from the kindergartner, all the way through my state policymaker. And fairness, again, transcends all of those various audiences. I want what I say and the metrics and the messages that I provide to these various audiences to all have been addressed for issues of fairness, as well as other, other related validity issues and other interpretation to be technically sound and so forth from a psychometric perspective but really to think about fairness as just as important as the integrity of the data. And the last one here is really a critical point that fairness is not really saying there's no variability in the groups. Fairness is not the same as all groups, all test takers walk away with the same average score or the same results. Otherwise there would be no sort of no point in assessment if we knew what the end result was going to be. Rather, fairness is about leaving in the appropriate types of variability. I'm looking for variability on the construct. So if I'm giving a mathematics assessment to fourth grade students and some students really have mastered it and other students are really struggling with it and those groups are, are defined in different ways, that's okay because the construct is measuring the math standards in that state. I have not put something into the measurement of that construct that would um, differentiate those groups on group membership or some other group associated variable that is not of interest to me when I'm measuring fourth grade mathematics. So again, I, one of these issues, one of these concepts that people sometimes put together is, well, if it was really fair, wouldn't we all be doing the same? And that's not true. What we're saying is we're trying to eliminate any variables that contribute in ways that we don't want them to contribute. We want to get to the core of the construct that we're trying to measure and really hold that as fixed and as constant across the entire test-taking population as we possibly can. The other thing about fairness is it, it's going to vary. How I define and how I articulate and the evidence I bring to fairness is really going to be defined by my purpose. 
So if I'm assembling and developing an assessment for an end of course assessment in a district for high school biology, biology students, how I go about defining fairness is going to be directly related to the standards and the curriculum and the instruction that those students received as part of their biology course in that 10th grade in that district. That might, what I do there might be a different way to look at fairness than if I was looking at the state's 10th grade assessment that cuts across all different content areas. So purpose helps us define the type of audience, or I'm so sorry, the type of evidence that we really want to bring to this. Okay, so purpose is really sort of that, that first segue in as I articulate what I'm trying to do, just like you would when you define a test and the validity of the test and you outline all the steps you're going to put into place to validate that assessment, fairness has to be part of that conversation. What am I going to do from a fairness perspective to help me guarantee that the end result is valid across all test takers? At the end, from a measurement perspective, sort of I have dual, I have competing priorities. I'm trying to maximize access. And so much of what the new technologies and the new sort of artificial intelligence, the new learning integrated with um, assessment, all of those things, everything our field is pushing forward on is about maximizing accessibility. And those are all positive things. I want to be able to get in front of the student, the test taker with the appropriate assessment. At the same time, I'm trying to minimize well, we'll talk about a little bit more that term construct irrelevant, the things that are no longer relevant, the things that are not tied to my fourth grade math test, the things that are not an important indicator of whether that student has mastered fourth grade mathematics or not. All of those other things that are not relevant are those that I'm trying to get rid of, I'm trying to minimize. And I do that again through a system of checks and balances, practices, processes, and documentation that allow me to then say with some confidence, I have minimized those that I'm aware of and, and built a test with that in mind. Now, the standards sort of present a great, um, I, in my mind, global approach. They approach various audiences. They come at it very much from both the practitioner and a researcher perspective. The next, I wanted to add just a couple other sources here to help us put a little context because fairness is being addressed in other ways as well. So the standards are out there as sort of our guiding um, set of processes, but they also get translated into more specific things, again, given the purpose of an assessment. So if you're familiar with the Council of Chief State School Officers, um, and recently they have created sort of a high quality assessment um, document that goes through the steps that they are saying that districts and states should put into place to be sure that they have an assessment that is aligned to college and career readiness. And so this is a very specific audience. This is ties most generally to assessments that are being used for Every Student Succeeds Act or precursor No Child Left Behind, but really coming at that college and career readiness is the construct I'm trying to measure. And so whether I'm in sixth grade or eighth grade or 10th grade here, it's really about defining and measuring that skill set that allows me by the end of high school to say, I am prepared to go on and successfully take college level coursework. 
So as part of this commitment to high quality assessment, CCSSO in their documentation and in their guidelines have highlighted fairness as an aspect of what is essential for this high quality assessment. And I've just pulled up here point number four from their larger document and references for these will be in the slides that you receive from Jessica. But again, following something we'll talk about in greater detail, but the principles of universal design and those assessments being developed in accordance with these principles of universal design and sound testing practice so that the test, regardless of whether it's online, regardless of whether it's a paper and pencil, does not somehow interfere with how that student is taking that test. The second point being the appropriate accommodations and modifications are offered to students. So defining what the allowable accommodations are that again, maintain the construct. I'm not talking about changing the construct. I'm talking about allowing students to have the appropriate accommodations so that they can access the construct. And again, the construct in this case is college and career readiness. So as states and districts go about building assessments that are meant to measure college and career readiness, really they, they are being tasked with accessibility through universal design and through accommodations and modifications. Second sort of user, and again, showing up in their documentation, um, if you work within a state, knowing that there's a peer review process um, that every state must go through in order to again sort of continue no child left behind until it's replaced with every student succeeds act but as states put together plans that define their assessment system and not just their summative assessment system but cutting across all of their interim assessment systems as well again the peer review process is pulling out and saying to states you must have critical evidence as far as fairness and accessibility. So in this case, 4.2 of their document, the state has taken reasonable and appropriate steps to ensure that its assessment are accessible to all students and fair across student groups in the design, develop, and analysis of these assessments. So again, the, the federal government in this case for that funding is saying, you have to show me evidence that these assessments are fair and accessible. And it's not just enough to say, yes, I built them to be fair and accessible. Rather, the federal government, the peer review is asking for specific evidence in this case. Just following through with that same, um, as a state sort of creates their response to peer review, including things like descriptions of processes, including things like samples of the items, including things like the instructions, the directions, the accommodations that are allowable online. Showing this evidence to the peer review committees is essential in that peer review committee then saying, yes, you have evidence here of that very critical element of fairness and accessibility. Because void of that, you're not going to receive the peer review sort of that you meant the requirements of peer review for that assessment to be given in your state. And the same sort of level of rigor, that same sort of accountability should be what cuts across our entire profession. It shouldn't just be the statewide assessments. It should be the same evidence, the same documentation, the same rigor is required whether I'm creating a district level assessment, whether I'm creating an interim assessment for diagnostic purposes or prediction purposes, regardless of what I'm doing, the same principles 
of fairness and the same best practice should apply. Meaning I should be able to go in and look for those descriptions, that documentation, show me those exemplar test items, show me those directions, show me those accommodations that help convince me I have created a test that is both fair and accessible. Now it all ties together because really at the end of the day, we're about assessment, right? We're trying to create student achievement indicators that are reliable, valid, and fair. And this information, it has become more and more, and I've been in the field you know, 40 years now, it's become more and more a fundamental part of how we evaluate. It's, it's oftentimes used as a significant source as we argue for funding. It's a significant source of information for parents. It's a significant source of information for residents within a community, states within the United States. It's a significant source of information as we compare the United States to international or for international comparisons. So it continues to be a very significant source of information in our society. And so with that increased significance and really that visibility, I think even more so now pushes us as test developers and test users that we have to define and guide everything we do towards the appropriate use and interpretation. Because without that, I think we have a lot of different sort of things going on that we don't have confidence in, we don't have faith in, we cannot compare across. And yet at the end of the day, we want to use this information in a way that helps inform, helps shape, help sort of impact where we go next. And so we must balance the complexities of all the validation work that we all know so well and know that we have metrics and information coming out of assessments, but we must value that all of that work, including the fairness and the communication that we have to bring with it to students, educators, and policymakers. We must have that information, that communication down so that we have convinced in a very real way, policymakers and educators that what we're doing here is contributing to the greater picture. We are helping to inform a very complicated life uh, landscape of student achievement, but we are a valid and fair contribution to that. And I think that's important. So that assessment, of course, relies on our, our desire and our sort of our requirement to measure. And that measurement is where we really make all these decisions about what it is we're going to put into this assessment. What is the information that we will get out of that assessment? And so everything we do from design, development, review, forms assembly, until we get it in the hands of the person that's using it is really that measurement component. And every aspect of that needs to be checked for fairness. It's not just I want to look at the items and then if the items look good, I'm good. No, we must check every potential step along the way to ensure that we have, again, faith in the results because we know these results are going to be used in significant ways. And what does that mean every step along the way? Well, when we get into the second part here, we'll talk in greater detail, but I mean from the, the conception of the test itself through the definition of the test specifications, knowing those test specifications are pulling from that target domain, what it is that I'm trying to say about a student that reflect 
those content standards or curriculum standards or the other essential skills that are important for the decisions being made that are then trying to generalize to if you do well here, you will be successful there all the way to the construct itself. So knowing my test is really trying to make an inference back about that construct. And we know testing is not perfect. We know testing is at best sort of one more piece of this complicated puzzle. But that shouldn't stop us from striving to make that test in every step along the way as fair and as transparent as possible. We don't want to just sort of wave our hands over things and say, don't worry, I've got it. I'm the test developer. Rather, we need to convince people with real data and real process that what we've done was appropriate and, and evidence-based. And then the research design part of everything we do, of course, it has to it has to include the appropriate elements, the appropriate um, design components, the appropriate students, test takers, so that I can design my research to have an answer to my questions, my, my inquir inquiries about fairness. That needs to affect everything I do as well. So the structure of that design is critical to me as well. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there and ask if there's any questions just sort of to that intro piece. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Welch. So if you have any questions at this time, we'll give you a few moments to enter those in the chat box before Dr. Welch moves on to talking about more test development, more detailed test development practices and fairness strategies. Okay, it looks like we do have a question. Can you give an example of a testing issue that might have occurred in the past that is now thought of not to be fair? That is now thought not to be fair. Well, I, I think um, I, I couldn't like provide a citation right now, but I think the, the field at it, as it has rushed into technology enhanced items, um, for the last 15 years or so, the field has tried to create technology enhanced items. And what I mean is just more of an innovative approach to online items that capture student responses that can then be scored through artificial intelligence. And I think what that has caused, there, there was such a rush because they were felt to be better measures of the construct. And so by putting these out in front of students, they felt like the measurement was better on the front end from a content domain perspective. But what we're seeing now is more and more group differences on those items. And so I think now the literature as we step back um, and it, it cuts across personal devices, how the items are presented, the structure of how much text versus how much um, graphic is presented to the students, those are all showing differences from a differential item functioning that's now putting a little bit more of a hold on what we thought was good from a, from a content perspective. Um, so I think that is uh, part of our field that is now sort of stopping and trying to catch up with itself from the fairness perspective to catch up to the technology. I think everybody rushed forward thinking technology in and of itself is good um, but now that the fairness checks have caught up, we're seeing differences that are probably, unfortunately, looking at things that are not related to the construct itself, related more to the student's ability to um, maneuver through online delivery systems, and we're seeing more of a, a cut on things like 
access to computers, socioeconomic status, and so forth. So I think that's something that has er, transitioned just in the last few years. Okay. And then the next question, I think I'm actually going to, to hold off on because I think you're going to get to, but the next question was, please elaborate more on incorporating fairness in the research design, and, I, and you will be talking more about that. Um, there was another question. This might have been re reference to your, your response to the first question about being more specific regarding the type of item or test you're speaking about. Yeah. Um, and and that is one of the difficulties of doing something like this is we're trying to cut across sort of a wide audience. Um, what I'm really talking about though, and we'll look at a couple items here in the next section that introduce both an open-ended sort of question and a multiple choice question and trying to look at how those, even those two different item formats can introduce different sources of fairness issues in the scoring and reporting, in the subjectivity of that evaluation. And so decisions that are made in the, in the item design and format, at the very front end of this, really have longer term implications for how that plays out. Um, so I, I think there is a whole body of research that sort of follows different item formats through these fairness issues. Okay, very good. Thank yeah, that we probably won't get into in great detail today just because of the nature of this. Yeah, sounds like a follow-up webinar. <laughs> All right, thank you, Dr. Welch. You can continue with your presentation. Thanks, Jessica. Um, so here in the second part, the second of three, really want to focus more on that, those procedures and what we can do. And I want to reference as we go through here the, the actual language from the standard. So when I pull up like the standard 3.1, if you go to the 2014 standards, this is the first standard that appears in the fairness chapter. And it is saying that in putting responsibility for test development, administration, across all steps of the testing process are should be held accountable for the promotion of valid score interpretations and for the widest possible range of individuals and relevant subgroups in the intended population. So when we say test development, revision, and, and administration here, and it references designing of all steps, I think this is a part of our field that most people think, well, we've done a lot of a lot of work, a lot of research in different and particular steps in the test development process. So here I have a bulleted list of what you might see in a test development process, all the way from starting with the articulation of what it is you want to measure, and then designing that through the specifications and blueprint stages, and then my items, the development and the review of those items, and then the collection of empirical data on those items, whether it be through pilot testing or field testing or tryout, what, whatever you wanna call that, but the empirical collection of data, and then moving into whether I'm putting together a form or whether I'm putting together a, a pool for a computer adaptive test, whatever I'm doing there, finalizing what that is and then administering. So when I think about test development, I think about all of these various steps. And this is very much an iterative process and different people would have different steps in their process. But the idea here is I would have at least gone through all of these in my um, sort of in my thinking about the front end to the back end of the design of any particular test. So when I try to take my standard 3.1 and apply it, 
people tend to think, well, fairness comes up in item development, fairness comes up in item review, and again in the review of the forms itself. And people tend to think that, well, I have people, I have experts, I have fairness reviewers that I bring to the process. They might be part of the developers, they might be part of the people that look at and critique the items, both at the front end before I have empirical data, and then again after I have diff data or differential item functioning data associated with those items and I'm ready to put them into a form. So I think this is sort of the classic how standard 3.1 plays out from a development perspective. And yet I'm, what I'm trying to convince you is that it really should be at every step of this process, that there are critical elements along every step of this process that we should be looking to and for with respect to fairness. So if we walk through a few of these, I hope they become a little bit more obvious. Um, and again, knowing that whether we're designing a state assessment or a district or a very, very specific assessment. Maybe I'm trying to design an assessment in my district for use in identification for gifted and talented, or maybe I'm trying to design a test that's very diagnostic in purpose. We still all start with what it is I'm trying to do. What is it I'm trying to measure? The purpose of what I'm trying to do. And regardless of where that construct is being defined, whether it be in that curriculum whether it be in prerequisite coursework, whether it be in content standards, we really need to look at that documentation itself as a source, but we also have to view that with a fairness lens. Was that curriculum, was that set of standards, was fairness taken into account in the original sort of um, source documentation that I'm going to use and that's going to guide everything that I'm going to do going forward? So I need to be sure that what I'm turning to as my source um, for my content validation is really in and of itself also fair and accessible. Now many states take this on and districts take this on as they define their curriculum and so forth. But again, it's just sort of a, a specific stop and take stock of that before moving forward. When I get into design and specification, I'm making real decisions. I'm making decisions about how much of a certain content. I'm making decisions about item types. There I'm, I'm meaning multiple choice or essay or innovative items. I'm making decisions about the balance of those. I'm making decisions about how long the test is going to be. I'm making decisions about the alignment. Am I aligning at a grade level? Am I aligning at a standard level? And am I aligning at a domain level? I'm also making decisions about whether it will be online or whether it will be paper and pencil, whether it will be both and I wanna use them interchangeably or whether it will be both and I wanna use them separately. I'm making decisions about how big my pool is, how many different forms um, and all of these decisions are part of my test specification step. And so in each of these, regardless of the decisions I'm making, I should be thinking about it from a fairness perspective. So if my standards have articulated certain standards at certain grades, and I could measure them both through uh, multiple choice and open-ended items, I need to make decisions about what is the right balance of that item type given my test-taking population. 
given my test takers. If I'm thinking about different characteristics of my test taking population for the test that I'm attempting to measure or attempting to build, then I need to be very aware and match and balance things so that, again, I'm not bringing into question, oh, I've created a test that's way too short, for instance, I've, I've created a highly speeded test for my English language learners, or I've created a highly verbal based test for my English language learners, although the test is in mathematics. Have I inadvertently created something in my specifications by just aligning to standards without thinking more broadly about fairness issues? And so I need to be able to document exactly my decisions of how I went from my underlying validation documents or content validation documents to my specifications. And it's at this point, I need to include experts. I need to start talking to people about length and mix of items and accessibility of different technologies and understanding how every student in my test taking population will come to that and how they will access with or without difficulty in those decisions I've made. So as I go through this process, and we've all seen different sort of development processes written out where I might go out and identify item writers. I'm going to provide those item writers with some training, some um, guidance about how I want them to write. I'm going to then review those items by people that are measurement experts, content experts. I'm going to review them for editorial, for consistency with the standards. I'm going to then go out and field test those items and, and hopefully have a carefully selected group of, of students to participate in that field test that mirror and are representative of the group that I'm ultimately trying to generalize to. I'm going to then create an item analysis and look at item level data to determine whether those items are working and are they working appropriately and equally well for different groups of my test taking population. And then, of course, I go through reviews again and bring it back to the items are ultimately used or not used. So within every one of these steps, I can think of ways to help myself maximize fairness issues. I can think about my item writers. I can think about my reviewers. I can think about the characteristics and the breadth of what I want those individuals to represent in this discussion. So we oftentimes tend to think of those as um, item writers that have both the access of the, I'm sorry, the knowledge of the standards and access to the student test taking population. But I might also broaden that to be sure that they are well versed in what I mean by fairness. How am I guiding these people? What procedures do I have in place to help these individuals understand the issues and the concepts that I'm trying to address from the item development process? So there's just many opportunities throughout that. In the item review then, um, we oftentimes think of it sort of as different buckets of review content where I'm looking for whether those items are aligned. Did I sample appropriately? Um, from a fairness, I'm looking for topics that I should be avoiding, topics I should be treating with caution, um, whether I'm doing things like avoiding stereotypes, whether I'm doing yeah, avoiding um, topics that are best taken care of in a classroom, but not appropriate in a large scale assessment and so forth. And then from the physical 
presentation, uh, universal design principles, focus on students across the whole population, but also a particular focus on test takers with disabilities. Um, I want to look and be sure that the principles of universal design that we'll touch upon in a minute have been applied throughout my entire development, um, construction of the items, as well as the review of the items. Alignment continues to be an issue in the review process. And again, alignment is that opportunity for me to say my item is measuring what that standard is asking me to measure. And so when that standard says a student in fourth grade should be able to do X, Y, and Z, my, my, my item is measuring that. But I wanna be sure my item hasn't gone beyond that, or perhaps I've incorporated too many other things in my item that it takes me off course from what the original standard was. So being sure that alignment is there from a content validity perspective is another key point to fairness. The, the principles of universal design that I was just referencing, it is again an attempt to make as relevant as possible um, what that test taker is going to be engaged with. So from the very get-go, with the very first thing that the test taker sees, those directions, are they clear, are they concise, precise, um, things like the layout, the legibility, the materials, the presentation of the materials, things like visual materials, the use of graphics, the use of figures, the use of shading, color, all of those things, taking into account whether certain items can be accommodated after the fact. If I know I'm going to move a test from an online test, but I also have to create a large print version or a braille version of that, thinking about items that ultimately have to be accommodated in that world um, and understanding that I want to minimize complexity of language to make it no more difficult than what is being required in the standards. So things like that fall under the, the larger umbrella of universal design and again, captured in the development process also captured again in the review process. Okay, standard 3.2 then says that those test developers that are responsible for developing tests must measure the intended construct, obviously, but also trying to minimize these non-relevant characteristics. And those non-relevant characteristics can cut across a lot of different things, linguistic, communications, cognitive, cultural, physical, other types of things that again have an interaction with given test takers and the item that I did not intend to be as part of that test that I've just assembled. Um, when I say this, and the standards call this the variance in test taker scores that's attributed to extraneous factors. And those extraneous factors distort the meaning of the scores and therefore have a, a detrimental impact on the validity. They've somehow um, contributed in different ways for different groups of the test-taking population. However, if I look at it in a different way, in a recent publication by NCME that was edited um, by Linda Cook, um, Zeke defines construct relevance in three different sort of categories. And I think this is a nice way to think about it, the structure. He thinks about them as cognitive sources, those things that are not required those things that all of a sudden I've put into my item, but they were not a requirement from what I was trying to measure in the first place. The second category, physical sources, things like universal design would call 
visual displays, test formatting, other things, and oftentimes we'll see this in the online environment, those things that, again, sort of interact differently for different test takers. And then he lists a third source, effective sources, materials, topics, um, pieces, written materials that might elicit different reactions, sensitive reactions, for instance, politics, I would put into this category, things that we want to stay away from. Again, from a large scale testing perspective, we want to stay away from that. Handled in the classroom where we have the resource of a teacher there to deal with different perspectives, that's fine. But when we're dealing with large scale assessment, we don't know how different students will interact with these materials, best to avoid those things. So the goal here is to avoid. And I have just a couple examples here of of what Zeke's calling those different sources of variability. Um, language, for instance, if I'm trying to create a test here and my purpose is to define proficiency and I want to say whether a child has mastered um, the requirements and the standards. And it may be that I want something that I know students in my class are from the high end to the low end. So I, I don't mean to say I'm trying to create an easy test or a difficult test. So when I say it may include across the continuum of performance, I understand that because my standards really go from there. They have a hierarchy to them as well. So, but at the same time, I need to check every piece of information that I put into the directions, into the item stems and into um, the test questions themselves and the stimulus materials. Is the sentence structure appropriate for the grade level and for what I'm trying to determine? Is the vocabulary level appropriate? Have I looked at the stimulus materials? And when I say that, I mean if I've set up a, a passage from a reading test, if I've set up a series of data or uh, tables and graphics in a science test. Have I aligned that stimulus material back to the standards to be sure that they have a readability level that is appropriate given the level I'm trying to assess at? Have I included other qualitative and quantitative indices of text structure and complexity so that I know I'm not creating a fourth grade math test that has an eighth grade reading level? That's an issue of fairness. It might work for good readers, but at the same time, I know in my fourth grade math class, I have students that struggle with reading. And so I've introduced a component there that is interfering with my ability to assess that mathematics by including a high level of reading in that test. Okay, so the evidence might remain the same if I've changed my purpose. If I'm creating a test that's more for credentialing, for instance, where I'm just trying to determine whether a person has gotten over a threshold. Have they been put into the category that they have been credentialed or not credentialed? In tests, when I'm building there, then my source documentation really might be the demands of the occupation, the demands of the field that I'm trying to credential within. I never want to add language that's beyond what I'm trying to credential in. And it seems like something that's so common sense. Why would I ever do that? And yet, oftentimes when we're writing items, we're very concerned about qualifying things, being sure the key is the absolute key, being sure the distractors are good um, evidence-based distractors, understanding all of those things. And oftentimes the language of test questions and the language and the rigor of those start getting elevated because I want to be sure 
this key is absolutely the correct key. And how do I do that? I qualify it more. I add more language about it. And what have I done there? I've introduced things that go beyond the construct I'm really trying to measure in the first place. So complexity of language is critical. Being sure that what I'm trying to measure is one and the same with the level where I've started. And I'm talking here a lot of times about the complexity of language in tests where I'm not really met at the construct is not language itself. It's in mathematics, it's in science, it's in social studies, it's in math computation, it's other things, it's in the ability to listen. It's other constructs, not the language itself, where I have complicated things by adding more high level language to it that I did not intend nor did I need for the purpose of my assessment. Um, this, is an, this is a mathematics example, same sort of thing. Here we have a couple different issues going on with respect to fairness. So this is a, try to move my, this is an item that was written for fourth grade students in mathematics. And at the top of the screen, you can see that the standards itself says, understand a multiple of A over B as a multiple of one over B and use this understanding to multiply a fraction by a whole number. So that's the standard. And as I bring together item writers to say, okay, now I need to create test questions that measure that standard. One of the very first things I do is worry about, well, should I go about this in an open-ended item where I'm asking a student to, for the sake of the word understand in the standard, is that the same as identify in a multiple choice or do I need an open-ended where I'm asking them to explain something? If I've made that decision that that standard warrants something that's more open-ended, I might create an item. And this is a draft of an item that was written um, last year here at Iowa that we field tested in the state and it was an open-ended item. And so we're getting at the A over B and so forth. We feel good from an alignment perspective. We've made a decision about the, um, the item format. Okay, we feel good about both of those things. Now we have to worry about the scoring side of things. And we start to think about scoring from the student identifies and explains and so forth and coming up with a two point or three point rubric here that in response to this item, the student has to not only accurately figure it out, but also explain. So by doing that, I've introduced into this sort of a language component. So if this was a fourth grade math item and I wanted to use it in the entire state of Iowa, where I know about 12% of my students are English language learners in fourth grade in the state of Iowa, have I for those students complicated something here by asking them to explain. Could I have gotten to the measurement of that standard through a multiple choice item without the explanation? And so it's issues like that that are tied to this design and item development part of the process that every decision along the way is going to have implications. The minute I make this decision, I've created for myself another potential issue for fairness. 
Now you might argue, well, if you didn't have explained, you have a different issue. You have an alignment issue in that understand is not best measured through multiple choice. Understand is really best measured through the articulation or the explanation of what the student understands about this item. So I have sort of competing priorities there again, but I need to be aware of it and I need to be cognizant of what decision I'm making going forward. I've lost my cursor there. Okay. So if this becomes my evaluation, my response, where I'm taking into account communication skills, sentence structure, organization, I've all of a sudden gotten a long ways from the, the conciseness of that, of the item itself. Okay. So I've introduced another variable that I need to control for. All right. So this complexity of language in the math example, that tends to be something we, we struggle with. And it's not just mathematics. It's, again, as I said, other types of content where the, the construct that I'm trying to measure is not a language-based construct to begin with, okay? So if I think about English language learners versus native speakers of English, language becomes a barrier in one or the other. And I have to decide, do I need my fourth grade students in this case to show evidence of good sentence structure and organization and so forth. Here's a second item. Again, same sort of issue. We decided to go out with this as an open-ended item again. So Steve was writing a report, found that the record low temps, we've got things like International Falls, um, high record temps in Phoenix, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so simple math concept, but what have I done here? I've thrown in language Language like International Falls, Minnesota, Phoenix, Arizona. I've thrown in words like Fahrenheit. I've thrown in temperatures. Um, so I've thrown in a vocabulary in my STEM that is beyond the level of where the mathematics is. So I've introduced another potential fairness issue in the STEM itself by, by having these words in there. I could have just as easily sound said they found this in city one and city two, taken all that vocabulary out of there. So I've not only introduced um, a potential for fairness from a language complexity perspective in the STEM, I again have that same problem with the response. Again, explain why Steve's conclusion was correct or incorrect. And again, asking students to do that, I have to be aware of that response, again, that has to be um, evaluated four things that I find of value for the four, again, this for the fourth grade mathematics test. Okay. Um, Ziki's second source was physical sources. I just threw up a couple of really extreme sources before universal design became an ongoing part of where we are today. Um, you would see tests like this. This is a page out of a 1977 book. This is a page out of a 1982 textbook or test booklet where things you could not braille these very well. You could not turn these into audio versions of the test for students that have visual issues. These items become a huge challenge. And I have introduced a physical component that again, is going to advantage or disadvantage students with visual um, issues. And I have created this just in the presentation of my items themselves, okay? In today's world, you might struggle more from a online versus paper and pencil here, PPT meaning a paper and pencil version versus a computer-based version, where on a screen for the computer-based version, I have a single item versus a paper and pencil, I have three items on a, on a page. 
have I introduced again an issue of fairness? And for little young students, some of the research suggests that yes, students are much better in the computer base because I can't get off, I can't move without answering that question and I can't inadvertently go to other. So things that Ziki again would call physical are things we're trying to take control of. And then the last one he talks about are effective sources and um, where we're eliciting sort of different reactions to items. And this is probably the most difficult thing to do. This is sort of the classic thing that we ask external reviewers to come in and look for. What are basic issues of things, fairness that have been there and um, what are things we should get rid of? So any kind of topic that might elicit emotional responses, anything political, religious, holidays, those things are eliminated. And I think, again, this has been something our field has has really taken care of in the last 20 years or so. But this is where a lot of the fairness standards have come out of. Okay, I'll come back to that. As I go into one of my final steps of test assembly, then alignment, reflecting my test taking population, understanding the balance of individuals within that, and then the final review of those items, it's critical in that test assembly process. All right. Standard 3.3 is the other sort of standard that I think we all think about with respect to fairness. And this is the one where I've collected information on subgroups, relevant subgroups as the standards say, with respect to validity and reliability that I'm going to look at with respect to fairness. And so critical to fairness in this issue is finding samples for my research that really look like my overall test taking population that are adequately sized to allow me to do some of the statistical analysis that I need to be done and that are collected at the appropriate points in time and using the appropriate um, whether it's be online or paper and pencil. I can't go out and collect things paper and pencil and then assume that they're going to translate into an online environment. So really identifying what I need in my research samples so that I can make some valid and um, sort of accurate statements about differential item function. And we do this analysis in sort of two different levels, both at the item level and again at that test assembly level. The most sort of classic approach at the item level of differential item functioning, that if I have adequate samples in front of me, I can evaluate whether, whether items are performing differently for different groups of the population when I'm controlling for the underlying ability. Again, this is not just did this item do better for females than it did for males. It's not that. It's about when I condition on students in that female population that are at the same ability level as that male population, when I condition there, now how is that item performing for those two different groups? And I need to be able to collect as a researcher information that's statistical like this that I can then analyze and make part of my review process. Other things that I look at at the item level are plots of difficulty and discrimination, being sure that the, the relationships there between difficulty and discrimination are consistent across different groups, as well as looking at item characteristic curves and item information functions if I have the appropriate samples to generate um, item response theory. At the test level, I might look at things like confirmatory factor analysis to be sure the structure is the same for different and looking the same, behaving the same for different groups of interest. I'm also looking at the relationship between different groups and variables of interest. For instance, in college and career readiness, where we started with CCSSO, 
are these tests predicting in the same way for different groups of interest? As well as looking at, again, in an IRT way, um, whether the test characteristic curves, the test information functions, and so forth, am I getting the same efficiencies from a test for different groups of the population? Okay, last one, standard three, four, and three, five are the last two standards um, in chapter three. And they're talking about, and I think you will have additional webinars on this, but the test administration and scoring processes, and then the documentation side. And being sure that I have documented my procedures to be sure I have in place that transparency I need. Okay, and that documentation, not only transparent, but it has to be accessible. It has to be accessible to everyone, from parents to students to evaluators to users. And it has to be descriptive enough with enough detail that I have confidence that what I'm saying based on this sample is indeed generalizable to what I wanna do with that test. Okay, third section, and I know that took longer than I thought, I'm sorry. So we're gonna jump into strategies here um, and then we'll open it up for more questions, okay. Um, I think fairness is one of these areas of research that people tend to, again, say, yes, we did this. We went through this process. And what I'm suggesting is that it has to be well-defined. You have to be able to, as a user, go find the documentation. As a test developer, I have to define it. Then I have to go about putting it in place and then evaluating it. I can't just put it into place and leave it there and have the same group of people come in year after year and look at my item pool and just have it be you know, sort of a check in my process. I have to evaluate, is that helping me? Am I identifying items? What is it telling me about the items? What am I doing in my process to change those items? And I have to revise things in order to make them better in the long run. So if we're not learning from this, from this process, then it's really not of any value. It's just become sort of a, a something I have to do. But we, for the sake of the integrity of this, we really have to learn from this and, and change in order to move forward. So when I'm talking about evidence, I'm talking about evidence that's looking at the threats to validity, okay? Telling me about universal design, telling me about accommodations, telling me about other features that are there, tell me about item development, and tell me about forms development. So what do I, just like that peer review slide showed, I'm going to turn to you and show you my item specs. I'm going to tell you how I instructed item writers to write items, what to avoid, what to include, how to align to my standards. And then I'm going to tell you what checklists, what protocols, what guidelines, what training did I provide to my item reviewers as they went through and looked at these items through the different lenses. And then what did I do with that empirical evidence and how did I then review all of this and affect or change and if I had to change something significantly, what did I do with all of the other sort of dependencies in that process to allow for me to make those changes? Okay, and my audience um, is, is variable. Of course, we've been talking about that, but for the sake of this documentation, I think there, there's three primary audiences, the test developers, the users, and then people like the Burroughs people, the test evaluators. What are you, what are you looking for when I want a third party external reviewer to come in and evaluate my assessment, what is the documentation I have in front of me? So taken from the code, which was the code of fair testing practice, 
which actually came between the most recent version came between the 1999 standards and the 2014 standards, it divided this into those two audiences of users and developers. And I think again, consistent here with what we've been talking about are all the different things that I as a developer should be documenting. And we won't go through these again, but I think the, co the original, um, code which came out in the late 80s and then was revised is a nice way to look at it by developer versus user that they try to talk about the shared sort of responsibility but then they articulate into these two different users okay and so i just include those here as a reference for you but i think again the the unique one here for today's conversation those test evaluators those individuals are going to come in and evaluate whether those procedures that I have documented, did were they enough? Did I go far enough? When the peer review evaluators look at my documentation, they're going to rate me. Did I show enough along the way to say, yes, you get a check mark on that or not? And if I have a deficit in that, what can I do to improve? They're also going to, from an evaluation perspective, review the performance of those text takers, not only look at the statistics, but look at the action that was taken by the developer. What happened? What happened to those items that were flagged? What happened to those procedures? And how did it affect things moving forward? And so they will also look at other types of performance differences that may have been a result of something in the test. So I need to have not only things documented, but I need to, again, go on to revise, evaluate and revise myself as a test developer. Um, I think I want to just end on a few things about new strategies and looking forward. Um, I think there's been a certain amount of research, and I think NCME, AERA, the standards have been great, different users have been great, but I think in the test development world, there's also some sort of current practice that's become a little too um, entrenched and has become part of a process without really evaluating it. I think a lot of the uh, research that's been done, and I referenced technology enhanced items earlier, has been more proprietary and tied to a certain contract or a certain testing vendor and it's not necessarily as public as we would like. So I would encourage people to um, be as open and as transparent as possible in this process and in the research as we go forward. So with the current item review process, I would say that the traditional approach is great. It's in process, but it's oftentimes a little too far along. When we looked at that, um, the process from the articulation of purpose all the way to the end, you can see design and um, all those things at the top, they're not really part of that review. And what I'm saying is that they really should be. We need to re-examine those procedures, knowing that I've got new technologies, new delivery platforms. I have changed things along the way. And I need to involve experts, technology experts, uh, fairness experts. I need to involve all kinds of people early on in that design and development process. And so that I can, again, sort of go into item writing with that in mind. Second one, the collection of empirical data. Um, the standards, and I, I know they again are trying to be broad, but they use language such as if the sample sizes exist or permit or to the extent possible and where feasible. And so they sort of this, they open up the suggestion that if there's not a sample size, I don't have to do this. And they allow sort of this tolerance for 
maybe the collection of empirical data at the pilot test or the earlier in the field test stages and so forth is not a possibility. And I think, again, this language has contributed to, okay, well, I only field tested on 300 students and the only valid group I can come up with is male, female. I have nothing else in that 300 group that will allow me to generate stable statistics. So I'm just not going to do it. So I think that is an issue with our current procedures and that collection of empirical data. There's just too many ways to avoid it. So I'm suggesting that state agencies, other testing organizations that are um, other testing entities and so forth that are seeking tests to be developed by these testing organizations, they need to require that. They need to require the collection of empirical data. And that means upping the sample sizes. And that means upping the empirical, um, I'm sorry, the representation of those empirical sample sizes so that I can do all of the analyses I need to do. So I need to build in timelines and I need to build in budgets that will allow me to structure and support this work. And so if a testing company is trying to get something to market in six months, I'm suggesting that we as an industry should say, no, you need the appropriate evaluation in order for you to be accepted out there. You need to show me evidence. And that evidence comes from, again, increased costs, but those increased costs on the front end have huge implications for the interpretation and fairness of interpretation on the back end. And I would put this with respect to all the new technologies and everything we're doing in our field, automated item generation, um, technology enhanced items, the automated scoring using artificial intelligence, all of those things need to be pulled apart. And some people have started this process, but again, it's not sort of out there and publicly known. All of those procedures need to be pulled apart and fairness needs to be part of that. Just because an item is automatically generated somewhere doesn't make it fair. I need to still evaluate what went into that generation and the, the ultimate result. And I need to articulate these, so. And then my final recommendation is we need to monitor the success of these procedures. We have them in place. I've been working for a long time in this industry and we, we have these documents, we, they're there, but I also want to be sure that we go forward with research and the, the public sharing of this information. Because again, it shouldn't be seen as a proprietary piece. It should be something that we all share what's good about fairness research and using that in different testing organizations. And coming up with other alternatives, smaller sample research and analysis, other ways that we can get to the end results that again, still help us from a fairness perspective, but might sort of create um, a path that is, that is more realistic for us. Um, so, okay. In that case, of course, as we evaluate looking and what are my success indicators, just to have these documents isn't probably enough. So I wanna know how these, how these documents, how these procedures have affected things. Have I increased and, my fairness indicators? Have I created on the back end better information? Have I had more sort of success from the validation of the test itself by the very implementation of these procedures on the front end? All right. I wanted to end with a quote from a gentleman that founded Iowa testing programs here and a lot of, he has a huge contribution to the field of measurement, but he was big about the front end. And this gentleman, you know, wrote this in like 19, 52 or something, but I think it's still relevant today that the decisions 
that are really preliminary. They're in the front end. They are so important. And we, I think our field gets so lost and sometimes in all the psychometrics and the, the true statistical analysis, we forget everything on the front end that we really should be controlling for from the get-go. Okay. All right. Jessica. All right, great. Thank you, Dr. Welch. So if you have questions, we have, let's see here, we've got about uh, 10, 15 minutes or questions. And we do have someone who's already submitted one as we wait for others. Um, the question is, what are your thoughts about tests such as the Woodcock-Johnson um, for cognitive or achievement tests being administered via telepractice? The stimulus material has been transferred to the computer so the student sees the same information in the same way as it be typically presented on the stimulus book, but now it is on the screen. And then the student and examiner can see, hear each other at the same manner as we're using today via video. Do you feel this interferes with fairness in any way? Well, I don't, I don't know about that test in particular, but I would hope that the publisher of that test um, went through the research that showed that that environment is the same, that we're not getting different results when we, we put the proctor online versus when the proctor is sitting there administering that test to that test taker. That by, by putting the materials in front of that student and removing the person, um, that in the case of the Woodcock-Johnson or other tests like that, I think some of the interpretation is tied directly to norms and whether they be age-based norms or grade-based norms. But to be sure that interpretation piece holds up is something that I would want to evaluate from, you know, with respect to what the publisher did before they just went that way. Um, I think that's sort of a common practice right now is to try to take everything we have in paper and put it online. And maybe if the stakes are very, very low, it doesn't matter if it's a practice sort of thing. But when I'm starting to make decisions about an individual child and their next steps, then I want to see the research that suggests that's still a fair interpretation, that those norms are just as appropriate in that online environment as they were in the original paper and pencil environment. Okay, thank you. And while we wait to see if there's some other questions, I will mention um, that we will receive a request to complete an online evaluation of this presentation today. It should take you about 10 minutes uh, uh, to complete your input would be very helpful to the future program planning. And if you have requested continuing education credit, you will need to complete that evaluation before we can send you your documentation of attendance. Uh, so the next question that we have is, how can or should fairness be articulated for the CAT measure? I assume computer adaptive testing. Yeah, well there, because I think everything we talked about with respect to items, it is very much in place that I am right all that front end everything I'm doing right up to the assembly of my item pools themselves is still relevant. I'm still looking at the cat items that pool. I'm still going through all of those individual item reviews on the front end. All of that is in place when I get to the test itself and a given test is given to a student. What we're making the inference there is because every item in the pool has been reviewed and approved and is eligible for inclusion, then by the very selection of items that I'm putting together, sort of if I get 30 items and Jessica gets a different set of 30 items, 
that by its very nature coming from this already approved pool that that should be a fair interpretation that those items are fair and the collection of those items for a given test taker are fair. We don't have the same, you know, ability to to obviously look at test characteristic curves unless we just go in and create or simulate and so forth. And a lot of large testing programs do that as well. Come up with you know, the many different iterations of the CAT and look at that for fairness as well, which I think is part of the sort of the procedures that should be in place for a CAT. Okay, very good. And the next question we have is how do, how do we know if our efforts to make tests more fair actually work? Is there an analysis tool you can recommend? No, I don't think there is an analysis tool, and I'm sorry. I, I think we have to take fairness and assume it's what we're striving for and then weave it into our validity research studies. So when we think about why we designed the test in the first place and we put into, and we put into that procedure all of our fairness stops, we're hoping at the end that we've enhanced the validity of that assessment. So in the same way that we would validate, whether it be on the content side, through alignment, whether it be on a prediction side, whether it be on a, you know, relate to another sort of criterion, that those very, um, I guess, indicators of validity on that back end will be seen in a more fair way, that that, that message is, is clearer and can be interpreted with fairness in mind. But I don't think there's an analysis itself. I think what these different groups are doing that like peer review, they're coming down to just sort of the documentation side of things and not really the sort of the after the fact, after I give the test and analyze it that way, unfortunately. All right. And um, Kathy, if you would go on to the next slide, I'll talk a little bit about some of our upcoming ones while we wait to see if there's other questions. Um, so we do, I do, as I mentioned, this was a first webinar in a five-part series, and um, we do have four additional oh. presentations coming up, and actually two, the two upcoming ones in April and May are notable school psychologists, um, Dr. Samuel Ortiz and Dr. Ryan Kettler, and they will be talking about some of their research um, and theory and research and what they've learned from that and then how that's been put into practice um, to make tests fair for English language learners and individuals with disabilities. And so I'd encourage you or if you have colleagues who might be interested in attending those. Um, I also will mention, um, uh, if I haven't already, is that we are recording these presentations and they will be available on our video library. And in fact, our video library has um, a archive of many of the programs like this that we've done. We've done a series on clinical assessment, decoding the standards for educational psychological testing, which featured members of the, um, the committee that actually helped draft or guide the drafting of the 2014 standards, and then evaluating tests uh, for quality that featured some of our mental measurement yearbook reviewers, long-term distinguished reviewers. And so those might be of interest to you as well. Uh, it does not appear at this point that we're receiving any other questions, although please submit that if you are and we might be able to catch it before we're done. 
But I do want to thank you, Dr. Welch, for your informative presentation. I think you provided some information that could be very helpful in thinking uh, more carefully about fairness, whether we're developing assessments, selecting assessments, using assessments. Um, and so I think those are the kinds of things that we need to do as a field uh, to make sure that we have um, scores we are obtaining and interpreting and using that are fair and valid for all participants. So if there aren't any other questions today, um, we do appreciate your attendance. Thank you for support of our programming. Thank you, Dr. Welch. We appreciate your input and your expertise. And um, as I mentioned, though, I have provided our email addresses, both myself and Dr. Welch, in case you have any follow-up questions. Otherwise, thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah, thank you.